Great to see you all this morning. Uh, it's good to uh, always just be at church. Uh, good to come up here, have an intro, and uh, talk about Justin Timberlake, I guess. I don't know. First words that we hear at church. Um, so we're, we're in this series in, in Romans, and uh, we're going through chapters 9, 10, 11, really the most difficult chapters in Romans. Um, and they get glanced over a lot, and sometimes people want to go deep into the theological understanding of God's sovereign choice and man's, sovereign cho- man's ability to choose, and we kind of forget the, the emotional, um, really, earthquake that, that's going on in Paul's life. Um, so just maybe to begin this morning, because I've, I've done this message in, during the week, I've, I've written probably three different messages, you know, for, the, for this morning of how to approach this. Um, but let me just maybe begin with the question of, um, have you ever been angry with God? Like really angry with God? I, I mean, so much so that you actually want to give up. You actually want to say, forget faith. Have you ever been really angry with God? I, when I look back at my Christian life, my Christian life began when I was 18. And um, a lot of kind of turmoil I've shared before in my, in my formative years um, it, going into my 20s, had a lot of anger, a lot of anger. In my, you wouldn't necessarily see it on the surface. I seemed like the nicest person. But down below, it was just like a volcano, just ready, ready to be unleashed. And then so when I got saved and went to church, uh, you know, when you're a new Christian, everything's like bright, everything's nice, and like you're, you're in the kingdom of God, and everything's supposed to, to be really good. Your friends are supposed to act like friends. You know, people are supposed to care for one another. Uh, we're supposed to kind of be not like the world, not as superficial as the world, and we're supposed to be really worshiping Jesus, and we're supposed to be together in, in such great power and such great unity that be, we would be a witness for the world around us that's watching us. And then I went through three and a half church splits, you know? We just got smaller and smaller and smaller, and, and these were pretty, pretty traumatic as a new Christian. Especially when, you know, uh, you're, you're a new Christian <clears throat> and the ambulance comes to your church because two seniors in their 70s were fighting. And one of them got knocked down, you know, and the ambulance came to our church. What's going on here? Uh, we were fighting in the parking lot. <laughs> our seniors were, you know, I mean, just really just. You know, you think about these things, and, and it just, it's really devastating to your faith. And it makes you really angry at God. And here's the big thing. You, you begin to question God. Like, God, is this the church? I mean, how, God, how is your mission moving forward with people like this, with people like me? I mean, is this really going to go anywhere? How far can this really go? Because it just seems too messed up. Seems like the world's messed up, and it seems like the church messed up, and you know the mission of God. What mission of God? How do we get anything accomplished with people like me, people like us in the church? And I remember that all of this kind of turmoil came to came to a head when um, it's weird because even though you have these questions, at the same time, it's like you really love God, right? Don't you? Like you, some your faith tells you like if there's only one hope, and you know like Peter said, when when everyone deserted Christ. And then Christ turns to Peter and says, you know, what are you guys going to do? Where are you going to go, right? And then Peter says, well, who, to whom else can I go? 
who else has the words of life? And that, that rings so true. I was like, well, who else am I going to go to, right? At the same time, so you love God and you love church. At the same time, you despise things about it. And you get so angry and you're just wondering, is this going anywhere? And, and it all came to a head when I took my first seminary class. <clears throat> so I loved God enough that I was like, I want to learn more about Scripture. At least, you know, I was heading somewhere. And uh, it was a seminary class in the book of Acts. And... Um, I guess it was one of those classes at the, you know, the right thing at the right time. And as we were going through the book of Acts, I just got more and more angry. Because when you read the book of Acts, right, um, it's over 40 span, 30, 40 span year that, that all this, the stories take place. But when you read the book of Acts, it is a mess. It's all about how the church moves forward and its mission, guided by the Holy Spirit. And you would expect that, you know, the Holy Spirit and, you know, supposed to do things really orderly, you know, supposed to kind of go off in a, in a nice, neat, strategic plan, right? You know, when the church first got birthed in Acts, you know, one of the first things that happened, there's a guy named Ananias, and he decides to sell some property, and he's going to use that proceeds and give it to the church because the church is not very well off. He's doing something kind of good, right? But what, what happens is he ends up holding back some of that money for himself. And he brings it before Peter. And then Peter kind of knows that he just, he's just doing this. He's doing this act of kindness and philanthropy and generosity just to get the praise and the glory because other people were doing it too. And Peter says, I see your heart. You're dead. Go home. He dies, like right there. And then his wife comes. He's like, what's my husband doing on the floor? Well, you know why. You're dead too. You know, she both, you know, I mean, and that's, that's like one of the first instances of like how the church is, is birthed and moved forward. And you're like, what the world, what the, you know, I use stronger language than that, you know, but what the world, like, what is God doing? What are, what are you doing? I mean, what kind of witness is that to the world? Is this how the church moves forward? And then you get to, when you get more into Acts, man, you see Paul, I mean, he had the, one of the most difficult lives you could ever live. It was not easy. It was not straightforward. Persecuted, whipped, chained, uh, you know, run out of town. I mean, all, whatever you could imagine, things that could go wrong. The church did not move forward in this, this orderly fashion. And so I was just getting, just getting more and more angry and then my just own inner turmoil anger. And then we had to write this final paper, right? And I'm not bragging, but you guys know I'm a good writer, right? I'm a good writer, okay? So I'm expecting to get, I could do the work, I could do the research, I could write the paper, and I, I know I can get an A, all right? I could do the work. So I just decided to use this moment and to express my true thoughts about what I thought about the mission of God in my paper. <laughs> so in my paper, <clears throat> I just said, I don't like the way God works. That was kind of like my final conclusion. And during my, in the, in the, my paper, an essay, I just said all the ways that just confused me about the way God works. I don't understand why he does this. I, understand, I don't understand why people have to die. I don't understand why there's so much confusion and opposition. I don't, understand, I don't like the way God works. The way that God works is chaotic. I don't get it. And that was kind of like my final conclusion. But I wrote it in such a really good way, in very academically way. You know, I put all the proof in there, had all the scripture verses and everything. It was really good right? So that was my final paper. I get back my final paper, and there's just one comment on the bottom of, of the paper my professor wrote. And he said, and yet, 
the Holy Spirit led the church, and the church grew. B plus. All right? <laughs> so, yes, I was going to get the B plus because somehow I didn't get my theology right. Somehow everything that I understood or my experience or reading scripture led me to a place where I was not really uh, hopeful about the future, but I was actually very pessimistic and angry about God. And then, yeah, B+. Plus. But in that moment, what helped, what it revealed to me was that um, even though I was seeing things, I wasn't really seeing things rightly. Even though I was coming to my own conclusions about the mission of God and the way God works, I wasn't really seeing things rightly. And for all the ways that I could talk about how I prayed for the kingdom of God to come, how I want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, the reality is that if God's will and God's way doesn't really match what I would want him to do or the way that I would do it, I don't like it and I don't want to go along with it because I want to be in control. Because when God's in control, it's and yet he moves the church forward. And I think that there's probably times in all of our lives, many times in all of our lives, where we get angry at the way that God moves. We get angry about maybe the lack of movement of God that we see in our lives. And we wonder, is this worth it? And we get angry at God and say, God, you're not moving in the way that I expected you to move. There are things in my life that I did not expect to have. Why do I have to deal with these things that I have to deal with? God, I don't like the way you move. God, I want to give up. If this is the way you're going, I don't want any part of it. And so what's interesting, in Romans chapter 11 is where we are, is that Paul, it's the most, probably the most transparent moment in his life that I can think of in Scripture, where he says, that's me too. This is where I was too. Paul, the greatest missionary, the one who started it all, that there was a moment in his life, there was a moment in his life where he could have said, you know what, forget this too, it's just crazy. And imagine what would have happened if he would have said that. So you can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, we're going to begin there. And again, just to get, in order to, just get, to get to that point, Romans chapters 1 through 7, we went through this, Paul's explained the greatest need of humanity, that we are utterly lost in our sin there is fear and guilt and shame and evil, and God has sent Jesus the Christ to die for us, to forgive us of all our sins, to free us from the bondage that we are in so we might live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Life-changing. And so ever since Paul, again, he was an ultra-religious Jew, Jew, when he became a Christian, again, he's leading this effort to make Jesus known to the whole world. But things have not gone as expected. You would expect that the Jewish Messiah, right, the Jewish nation, would follow the Jewish Messiah. But that has not happened. More Gentiles followed Jesus. As more Gentiles followed Jesus, it seems that more Jews rejected Jesus. Think about this. The entire redemptive narrative of the scripture, the entire redemptive narrative of what God is trying to do is fulfilled in Christ. 
That's what the nation has been waiting for, and yet the nation is not following. That is devastating. That is devastating. It's not supposed to be that way. The Messiah was supposed to come. God chose Israel. And so you'd think that all of Israel then would go along and follow its Messiah. It is not happening. And so chapters 9, 10, and 11, it's Paul's wrestling with what has happened to the mission. Is this really working? That's what 9, 10, and 11 are about. Now, a lot of theologians and a lot of people in academia, like we, we like to go into 9, 10, 11 about God's sovereignty and human decision, how that works together. And like Tung said, laid it out two weeks ago, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. And we forget that 9, 10, 11 are Paul's really painful way that he's processed through. What has happened exactly to the mission of God? All right? So beginning at chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. <clears throat> and Paul says this, I ask then, <coughs> did God reject his people? Has God rejected Israel? And then he says, by no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul is saying, you know what? I haven't given up hope yet. I haven't given up hope yet because God hasn't given up hope on his people yet. God hasn't rejected the Jews because he says, look at me. You know, look at Paul. He's a Jew. So if God has received him, if God's sovereignty upon his life and yet his own choice for human decision, he, you know, he confessed Jesus as Savior. As those things work together, it worked for his salvation. Verse 2, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. So I didn't give up hope. Sorry, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. So here's Paul. <clears throat> He's saying, I didn't give up hope in God. Didn't give up hope in the church. Didn't give hope, up hope on God's mission. But here's the next verse. He said, it's his confession. Paul says, I almost did. I almost did. Look at these next words. He says this. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? And everyone's going, okay, where are you going with this, Paul? Where, where, where is this coming from? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are killing me. All right, what is going on? What is, what is Paul talking about? Why is he bringing in Elijah? What in the world is he doing? Okay, it's actually very simple. Have you ever read the Bible and said, that's me? I identify with him. I identify with her. I identify with that story. You know, Gideon, we know that story. Gideon needs a sign from God, and so he puts the fleece out. You know, and he gets the sign, he gets the dew one day, and then, you know, he's still, you know, not sure. And he puts the fleece out again, right? We will need a sign from God. You ever been there? You, need to sit, you read that, and you're like, man, that's me. King David, he writes all these psalms, and he, rate, he writes a lot of songs about how isolated, how abandoned he feels by God. And you read that, and you're like, man, that's, that's me. Joseph, right, the story of Joseph, he's rejected by his brothers, um, life is just one depressing episode after another. And you read that and you're like, oh man, that's just where I feel. Life is just one depressing episode after another. That's me. One day, Jesus, he tells a rich young ruler, he says, sell all of your position, possessions, follow me. And the young man just slowly kind of backs away, right? He's like, oh, that's me. So what is Paul doing here? Paul is saying, this 
is one of, I'm sharing with you, one of my most critical me too moments. Paul is sharing that at one point in his ministry life, it's probably it's sometime in the past, but at one point in his ministry, in his Christian walk, he struggled with the same exact complaint that Elijah had against God. See, he's saying, this is the passage that I most identify with in my struggle, in my understanding of God's mission moving forward. And let me just give you the three, first, first of all, what Elijah says, okay? Elijah's complaint to God is, number one, there's not enough people with me. I feel alone. Number two, there's way too many forces against me. And number three, if this is how it's going to be, don't count on me. Do we have the PowerPoint up? We have any issues? Issues? Okay, all right. So I'm going to say that again, all right? So Paul, he's struggling with the same complaint that Elijah has against God. Number one, there's not enough people with me. He looks at the mission. He looks at what he's called to. He says, there's not enough people around me. I don't have support. I feel alone. There's not enough people with me. That's number one. Number two, there are way too many forces working against me. I'm not strong enough. The giants are too big in the land. I cannot move forward because the giants are saying, no, you can't go. Number three, Elijah says, if this is how it's going to be, God, if it's going to be this hard, if this is how it's going to be, then don't count on me. In fact, Jesus, just count me out. Just count me out. Now, how do we know Paul was feeling all these things? Well, remember last week, <clears throat> we talked a little bit about hermeneutics, and we talked a little about how, you know, good exegesis, and that when any New Testament writer, Jesus, Paul, Peter, when they are bringing in an Old Testament quote, not only do you look at literally what they're saying in the Old Testament quote, but you have to bring in the context of that story also into the present quote. And for our purposes, it's Romans, okay? So what is the context when Elijah is saying these things? He's quoting from the prophet Elijah. What is the context? Well, really quickly, Elijah, the story, remember, he defeated the prophets of Baal. Remember that, All right? Jezebel threatens, the next thing happens that Jezebel threatens Elijah. He says, I am, she says, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. She makes an oath. And in the next, very next verse, it says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And in the very next verse, it says this. Elijah's talking to God, and he says this. I have had enough, Lord. He's talking to God. I've had enough, Lord. Count me out of whatever you're doing. Very next words. <clears throat> so he says, I've had enough, Lord. Very next words. Take my life, all right? Not just count me out, <clears throat> but take me out. I don't want to live anymore, and I don't want to live for you anymore because it's too difficult. I'm no better than my ancestors. He's, he's thinking about all the ways that Israel have just kind of like not really followed God well. He says, I'm just like, I'm just like them. Consider me unfaithful. Count me out, Lord. I've had enough. I can't take it, and take my life. Count me out and take me out. <clears throat> then he goes, then it says, he laid down under a bush and he fell asleep. He was in the desert. He just ran as far away as he could, trying to run away from God, trying to escape from God, but he knows he really can't. 
he gets some rest. <clears throat> he wakes back up in verse 10 in 1 Kings is this. <clears throat> he replies and he says to God, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Right? And then here's where, uh, oh, I'm sorry. After he wakes up, God asks him this question. He asks Elijah this question. What are you doing here? What are you doing in this place? Verse 10, okay. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. This is back in Romans uh, chapter 11. And here's where Paul begins to quote Elijah. He says, the Israelites have rejected your covenant. That's what Paul says. Yeah, the Israelites have rejected the covenant, have rejected Christ. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. They put Jesus to death. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. See, Paul is taking all of that and applying it directly to his context. See, Paul and Elijah, they're twins. Because when Elijah did this amazing work of God, he proved that the God of the universe was the only God, and all the prophets were wiped out. His assumption was, rightfully so, that this display of miracle would win over the hearts of King Ahab and, King, and Queen Jezebel, that this display of power would make all of the hearts of Israel turn back to God. But the exact opposite happened. The king and queen were even more against Elijah. And no one was really turning their hearts back to God. The nation of Israel was not turning their hearts back to God. It seemed to have the opposite effect. I mean, that's just, their hearts were being further hardened. I mean, that's just confusing. That's really confusing. I mean, you're going forward, you're doing God's ministry, you're trying to do God's work, and some amazing miracles are happening, and yet you get the opposite effect. I mean, that's just really devastating. And so he just, he's so afraid now. Now it made things worse. Now, you know, the armies of Israel are after him. He saw no hope in God's mission. He wanted to give up. And Paul says, me too. That's why I'm bringing Elijah up. That's where I am. Because I'm preaching the gospel. I'm preaching about Jesus' resurrection. But instead of reception, people are rejecting and I'm getting stoned, and I'm getting chased, and I'm being imprisoned, and I'm persecuted, and I'm whipped, and I'm shipwrecked, and the Jews, too, are still trying to kill me. This is not the Christian life that I was expecting. I've just wanted to crawl under a tree and sleep. God, I don't like the way you do things. I'm, I'm going to harden my heart. God, count me Count me out. Have you ever said that to God? Have you ever said that to God? Just God, just too hard. I want to live a more minimal Christian life. You know, just, just this mission stuff and just God, just count me out. Have you ever said things like, God, I don't like the way you do things. I don't like my life as it is right now. I don't like the way you're working in my life. I don't like the way you're leading me in my life. It's difficult. It's a lot of pain. It's isolated. God, I just don't like the way that you, you do things. I think for, for me, <clears throat> um, especially as a pastor, you know, I mean, some of the most difficult times for me as a pastor is our, our funerals. Funerals. 
Because I've done funerals where, you know, I feel like, man, people are taken away way too early. And even those who are older, who've lived a full life, still never seemed like the right time. Right? And we've all been touched in this room. We've all been touched in some way by, by something tragic that really makes us kind of question the sovereignty and, and, and the goodness and the strategic, you know, planning of God as he moves forward. And, and, it's, and it's traumatizing at times. And it's sometimes it's, some, it's things we don't even want to admit that we have these kind of doubts. We even have this kind of anger. But it, it eats at us and it gnaws at us. And if it's not confessed, it can really begin to just create some weird anxiety and affect relationships in our lives. Uh, just for example, for, for me, I know this. There's, there's a certain, um, <laughs> you know, I don't like to use the word PTSD because I think our veterans, th those guys have PTSD and they, they really, you know. But as I just know as a pastor, I just know for me over the years, I have this, I have this thing, I have this anxiety thing. Whenever, whenever anyone tells me um, there's a, someone's in the hospital, right, and if you say Valley Medical Center, if you say Valley Medical Center, I, I, I feel this tightness right here. It's this automatic reaction. And then I know what, the, usually I know what the words are coming next. If you tell me Valley Medical Center, and I'm already thinking ahead of you, fourth floor, fourth floor, fourth floor. You guys, some of y'all know what fourth floor is. Valley Medical Center, I, that's ICU. It's ICU. I hate Valley Medical Center, fourth floor, ICU. I hate that room. I even know the room number. I can't stand that room. And it just, it's this anxiety thing. And then, you know, and, and it's just, it's just really confusing sometimes. And it's not because, you know, it, it goes back to what Paul is wrestling with, you know, God's sovereignty you know, God allows this to happen or God makes things happen. Yet sometimes there's this human choice of, of sin and just our fallenness of our bodies and we try to make sense of it. But it's so much easier. It's so much easier just to blame God. Isn't it? It's just so much easier to blame him. And one of the things that I just, that's helped me and maybe helpful to you is that whenever we get into these places that are really dark, when it comes to God as well or how we view God, Whenever you see that you are more just, whenever you come to a place where you look at the world and, and, you, are, and, and you see some of the pain, it's, it's so painful. Whenever you come to the world and, and, and you see that you are more righteous than God, that you care actually more than God cares about people. Get it? Where you care more about what God cares. Where you think, where you believe you're hurt more about the pain in this world than God does. Okay, that should be one of the warning signs for you, that you are not seeing the truth. You are not in the truth. Because if we know something about the character of God is that God is the most just God, that God is the most loving God. And so if we look at the world and come to a place where, oh, God, you just don't care. God, you're not loving. God, you're not just. Then you have to look back and take a step back and say there's something that I'm not seeing correctly. But regardless, when we have certain circumstances in our life that are so difficult, it's so easy for our hearts 
to get hardened. And they say, God, just count me out. Count me out. So in the time we have left, what do, you, what do we do? What's the hope for hearts that want to be hardened? What's the hope for hardened hearts? Okay, number one, <clears throat> tell God the truth. Number one, tell God the truth. Just like Elijah did, he railed against God. He complained. It's not something we do a lot, but it's okay. Because Paul says, Elijah did it, and I'm doing it. Right? That's what he did in chapter 11. Tell God you're mad at him. You can say things, I don't love you. God, you seem unjust, whatever it is. Tell God the truth. Stop trying to hide it. Because God already knows. God already knows you don't love. God already knows that you're bitter. God already knows that you're tired. Stop trying to fake him out. You can't juke him. You can't juke him. You can't. Uh, there was a time in, um, in, uh, in seminary, when I was in seminary school, and um, it was when I first started preaching, uh, doing preaching and teaching as well. And uh, Angel knows this too. Um, I would be spending just hours and hours and hours. I mean, you should be spending. You, you've got to spend at least like 20, 25, 30 hours maybe just to prepare one message, okay? But I was doing a lot more than that. Not only that, but um, I would write like about six pages of single-spaced, you know, text, okay, for my sermon, do all the research, everything, all right? And uh, I would memorize, I would, I'm not lying, I would literally memorize every single word. Six pages Single-spaced, text, 12-point font, times your Roman. Okay, I would memorize every single word because I was scared to death to be up here. I mean, I'm, I'm just clinging on to my notes for life. Good morning, church. I mean, I even had good morning, church, written down because I just was going to freeze, right? And when you come up here and you be in a place like this, man, you don't want to look dumb, right? You don't want to be unprepared. You want people to like you. You don't want people to leave. You have all of this pressure, right? And so what did I do? I was like, just worked harder, worked harder, memorized and memorized and memorized so that I could say everything correctly. And so my heart and mind weren't exactly there, but my brain was there. I mean, I was just like regurgitating, you know, every single thing. So I wouldn't mess up because when I'm up here, I cannot mess up. And uh, if you just imagine that what it was like, I mean, it was just torture. Can you imagine memorizing six pages and feeling like you have to memorize every single word? Because if you don't memorize every single word, you're messed up, you'll lose your train of thought, and you have no idea where you're going, and the plane is going to crash, and like, ah, you know, life is over, right? Can you imagine that? That's what was going on in my heart. And I was doing that every week, every week, for at least a year. And then I just started noticing things. I was like, you know what? This, 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 this is really hard. Like, why am I doing this? I don't even enjoy my life anymore. And I'm, I'm supposed to be serving God. I'm supposed to be, you know, preaching and doing things. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not fun anymore. In fact, I'm getting really resentful about the whole situation. And it feels like torture to be up at four in the morning on Sunday, sitting in my closet or whatever, is trying to memorize six pages of text. Torture. And I would just be thinking along those lines, you know, I'm doing this for almost a year, and I'm like, God, this stinks. 
They used much more harsh language with God back then. You know, but this really stinks. God, I don't, I don't really feel you. God, I don't even really understand if I, like, I don't even feel, like, why would you put me through this? I didn't sense God's love. I really didn't have much love for him, but I kept on doing it anyway. I just kept on chugging along. I kept on doing it and doing it because that's what I'm supposed to do. You do it, you do it. And you're never, you just think this is how, kind of how it's supposed to be. It wasn't until later, 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 I started being more honest with God. And then I realized, okay, I've been doing this for, for a while, and I, was, I just realized, you know what? I have no joy out of this. I can't sense God's love for me in any of this. I'm not even sure if I love God in this. And so you realize the problem, some of the problem, but you, I have no solution. I can't find a solution. And then so I go to Angel. I said, Angel, I said, you know what? <clears throat> I think I need professional counseling. And she was like, about time, you know? <laughs> and she was so happy. And I was explaining to her, because she could see just this inner turmoil. Like something's going on here, this inner turmoil that just like was, was poisoning relationships and poisoning ministry and poisoning work and poisoning things. <clears throat> and I went to counseling and said, man, it was the best thing. One of the best decisions I've made, ever made in my life. And it's kind of weird to be in a place where you know the problem and you don't know, this, and you don't know how to get the solution out of yourself. Isn't that weird? Because we always think we can do it ourselves, right? We can fix ourselves. Yeah, I could just go read a book. I don't want to spend all that money on counseling, you know? I mean, we, we figure all these ways that I can do it. It's one of the most desperate things to know that you're the problem and you can't find the solution in yourself. And it's also one of the best places to be because all you have is God. And the only person you can turn to is God. And God has to be enough or else you're not going to get through. You have to lean and lean and lean. And one of the things, just to make it really quick, you know, just, just through those uh, initial six weeks of counseling, uh, you know, he brought up all this stuff, you know, from my past and all these things with, you know, my dad and things like that and, and just how that I was kind of seeing my dad and certain authority figures and that was kind of messing everything up and the way that I saw God and just completely opened my eyes and just completely started to free me and the chains you know, were just coming off left and right. And I thought maybe the problem was ministry. I, I thought maybe the problem was, you know, I was just angry at the way God moves, wasn't doing things my way, and that was part of it, right? But the real root of the problem was just my own identity and in the way that I saw people and the way that I saw God. The reason we need to begin telling the truth is so that you can have more clarity in what you're really angry about. Because the things that you think are wrong in your life, the, the presenting problems and circumstances that you're so angry about, you're not really angry because of those things. There's actually something deeper that God wants to reveal to you. But you're only going to get there, you're only going to get there once you're honest with God. Because if you're not being honest with God, he can't really help you. It's really difficult for him to help you because you're not willing to see the truth that's in your own heart. So number one, you got to tell God the truth. And then number two, allow God to tell you the truth. So you're going to tell the truth to God, say this is what's going on in my life, and then number two, you've got to allow God to tell you the truth. So what did God say to Elijah? Thank you. Thank you, Jason. 
because I ran out. I ran out. Thank you. What did God say to Elijah? <clears throat> well, Paul quotes it too, because Paul's saying, I completely identify with Elijah's story. Wanted to give up just like him. So Paul quotes Elijah in Romans 11 because they both needed God's truth, not their own. Not your own version of the truth. So Paul writes in verse 4, quoting from 1 Kings, what was God's answer to Elijah? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Paul's conclusion, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And we need to write down this. I'll explain it in a second. But where there's a remnant, where there's a remnant, revival follows. Nice. Got the PowerPoint up. Next slide, I think. Uh, no. Uh, yeah, next slide. Tell the truth. Uh, okay, we're good. Oh, went back one. Sorry. Good. Okay, let's leave it there. <laughs> All right. So where there is a remnant, revival follows. Okay? Where there is a remnant, Revival follows. Now, what is uh, Elijah saying? Uh, God's answer to him, God says, look, Elijah, this is how you see things. You're alone, right? You got no support, and you, wanna, you just want to um, uh, be counted out of the story, okay? So God's answer to him is this. He says, I have reserved for you myself 7,000 who have not bowed, bowed down the knee to bow. <clears throat> He's saying there are more. You're not alone. You have great support. And he talks about the 7,000 people. Now, where there are literally 7,000, we don't know. But we just know this, that in the number, in, in Hebrew numerology, the number seven is the, is the number of perfection. So he's saying, I have a perfect number of people to support you. I have a perfect number of people to move the mission of God forward. I have the perfect number of people where you are not alone. And back again in Old Testament theology, there was always a time, you know, Israel would follow God for a little bit, then they would go astray, you know, and then God would do something to, to, to shake them up and bring correction. And there, there it is again, there was a revival, and, and then God would bring something, and they'd be up there, then they would kind of fall away again. And, and then there was some people left, and, and then God did something, shook them up, and then again, you know, there was a revival. So whenever there was revival, and then when things seemed to die down, when things seemed to get lost, when it seemed like there was no hope left, there was always this group of people. They were called the remnant. They were the faithful ones, so to speak. And God would use them again to stir up for the next wave of revival. See, that's why when God spoke to Elijah and when how it spoke to Paul's words was that there is a remnant. There is a remnant. And so he knew that in Old Testament theology, there's a remnant. And so when you hear that remnant, you automatically think revival. So when God told Elijah, there is a remnant, what Elijah heard is that there's a revival coming. There is a revival coming. And Elijah, it's so easy. You look at your circumstance and you feel like you're the only one left. Why would I continue doing this? Paul's witnessing to the Jews and he says, no one's believing. I'm the only one left. And that's where maybe some of you feel like. You feel like you're the only one left at work. You're the only one left in your neighborhood. You're at school. You feel like you're the only one left. At home, you feel like you're the only one left. You might even be at church. It's easy to be, even be at church. You're like, I'm the only one left. I'm the only faithful one left. But it's not true. 
It's not true. With Jesus, there is always, always a plus one with you. With Jesus, there is always a plus one with you. What we think is true, what we see is not true. What we believe is reality is not reality. God is the ultimate reality. And so it's foolish for us to make, make these broad judgments based upon appearances. You are not alone. All right, third one is that suffering under God's sovereignty produces hope. This is important. That suffering, suffering under God's sovereignty produces hope. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Get this, church, all right? In the Christian walk, suffering is supposed to be fruitful in your life. I know it's hard to accept that and receive that sometimes. But suffering under the sovereign care of God, if you give this over to God, whatever difficulty, giving that over to God, telling the truth about God, telling God the truth, and allowing God to tell you the truth about whatever suffering you're going through, the fruit of that is meant to be hope. That is good news. I mean, God is, he's guaranteeing, he's, he's putting a guarantee, guys. He's putting a promise that if you would take your suffering and instead of saying, God, count me out, say, God, count me in, because who else am I going to go to? That God, there's this promise that there's this remnant, you're, you're, you're acting as, as the remnant, and actually, you're not the remnant, but Jesus is the remnant. Who is the remnant? It's Jesus, because when you look through <clears throat> Scripture, Paul uses this word as saying that you're in Christ, you're in Christ, you're in Christ. The only remnant that you need is Jesus Christ. He's the one remnant that you can always depend on. He's the one remnant that is always there. He is the one remnant that is bigger than any of the opposition that you face in life. And Jesus is the one remnant when everyone counted you out, when everyone said there was no hope for you, Jesus went and died on the cross. He says, I'm all in for him, and I'm all in for her. That's what Jesus did for us. And when you see what he did for us, then you can say, Jesus, count me in. Because if there's a remnant, and Jesus is my remnant, then I know a revival's coming. Suffering under the sovereignty of Christ produces hope. Some of you need that today because all you see is the darkness of the suffering. And you need to know that hope is coming. I love this little, it's a, it's a Catholic parable, okay? So a guy, he goes to see a Catholic priest and <clears throat> for, for some counsel. And the guy says, I have this reoccurring dream, this reoccurring vision, right? And it's like I'm on the, like I'm on the earth and I'm running, and I'm chasing after the sun. Because the sun is where joy is, where glory is, where happiness is, where God's blessing is. You know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just running. I'm chasing after the sun. But I'm chasing, also, I'm also running the sun because behind me is the darkness. 
Like, I feel like the darkness is overtaking me. That's what my life feels like. And then so the Catholic, <clears throat> you know, the priest in his wisdom, you know, he's, <clears throat> the guy's asking, what, what do I do? And this is, this, is, this, is, this is the tension, this is the anxiety I feel. And the Catholic priest says, oh, that's easy. If you want to catch the sun, just run in the opposite direction. Run into the darkness first, and you'll catch up when the sun comes up. I love that. Some of you need to figure out how to begin telling the truth about, to God about the darkness that you're facing, the fears that you have, instead of covering those things inside, pretending like everything's okay because you're dying on the inside. Just last verse, just to close things up. If there's remnant, it means there's hope. And this is what Paul says in verse 11 to close up this section. He says, again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? He's talking about the Jews. Is it all lost? Paul says, not at all. Because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Not that God is trying to make people envy. He's just saying that the idea is that for the way that we win over the, the, nation, the chosen people is that we would make Christ and his church and the mission of God and the love of God look so attractive that people would want to come to know Christ. That's all he's saying. Verse 12, but if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, and then this is, this is Paul's conclusion, how much, more, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? So he's looking at the future vision and he's saying there's going to be a day that comes when the people that were lost are going to be found and it's going to be even more powerful than we could have ever imagined and more beautiful than we could have ever imagined. He was filled with hope. Filled with hope. And so who's our remnant? Who's the remnant in your life? It's Jesus. Jesus is the remnant. You can put all of your hope and trust and your faith in him. You can run and turn around and face the darkness and run through it because Jesus will be your hope. Because Jesus will be your strength. And he'll guide you through. All right, would you pray with me? <clears throat> so I just want to lead you um, in a prayer. And it's this prayer is just a, I call it a, just a count me in prayer, all right? Because there's probably some of you who are thinking, or have said to God, God, count me out. I don't want to do this anymore. Count me out. I just want to lead you in a count me in prayer. God, count me in. Count me in. All right? Lord God, thank you, Father, for um, today and for your goodness. And Father, just want to pray, Father, for those of us that when we look at our lives, there's some disturbing things that we see that have caused pain in our lives. Um, <clears throat> we see our current circumstances, and all we see is the darkness, and we don't see the light. And so, God, I pray, Lord, that you would build up faith in me that you would build up trust in me, that you would build up belief in me, that I would have 
the faith to declare and know that I can trust in you, that I can believe in you, that the darkness won't consume me if I run through it, that the darkness won't consume me when I face it. But when I tell the truth, you'll tell me the truth and you'll give me strength and clarity. And God, though it feels like the darkness somehow is consuming me and it feels like there's not a lot of hope in my suffering, God, who else can I turn to? Who else has the words of life? And so, God, don't count me out, but in this moment, God, count me in because I'm trusting in your full love and I'm trusting in your full security that you have my life and that you're holding it and it feels like you're only holding it by a strand, but that one strand is enough. It will hold. It will hold, God. It will hold. I'm trusting you for my life. God, I don't understand it all, and this suffering I'm going through is not, I don't understand it, God. I don't like it. But God, who else am I going to go to? And I believe that suffering through you where that suffering always has the fruit of hope. And so God, I'm trusting and put my full trust in your life that whatever I'm going through, God, that you have a plan for it, you have a reason for it, and it's going to produce even greater hope. So God, I don't want to be stuck in despair. I don't want to be down that path. I want to go to the place where it's leading to hope. So God, count me in. God, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I don't have to wonder anymore whether you love me, whether you care about me. I don't have to doubt anymore whether you think about me. Your love for me and your death on the cross has, is, is the deciding factor 2,000 years ago. So I don't have to keep asking that question again. So God, I stand in all of you. God, I love you. I'm going to follow you. Count me in. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Can we all stand together, church, and let's sing.